welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. I'm also director of the British Philosophical Association. This is the episode on war and peace, and it's the short episode. So it's the episode where it's just me talking, and I try and give a short, snappy summary of lots of the main parts of the topic. There's also out there in Podland a longer um, episode in depth where I'm talking with a couple of other people, Dan McKee and Lauren Tracekowski, um, and we think about all sorts of things to do with war and peace. Um, you should certainly check that out. Um, that longer episode is designed to help accompany your studying as you're studying something like war and peace, um, as well as help with uh, revision. Um, this short episode is something you can just plug into quite quickly and just get the basics. Um, something I say at the start of the in-depth episode is that war and peace is a topic um, only appears in the Edexcel um, A-level curriculum. So if you're doing AQA or if you're doing OCR, um, if you're doing hires or IB, one piece isn't isn't there. Um, but it is a topic that comes up in sometimes in GCSE. And also it's a fascinating topic and it might be something you want to do an extended essay on or some other sort of project. So it's well worth thinking about. Uh, before we get into the topic itself, a couple of other notes. So um, there's all sorts of resources out there two resources I always use uh, in my teaching when I'm preparing teaching and indeed in my research as a philosopher um, are the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, both available if you just search for them uh, on the internet. Um, they have really great entries on just war and pacifism, um, but they're also uh, really good for loads and loads of other topics, so check them out. Uh, and secondly, um, we're building up at the moment uh, in June 2022, lots of different episodes. If you go onto my website, just search for Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N, um, there's a tab at the top that says Pod Schools, and I try to keep that up to date with a whole list of topics and roughly when we're recording the topics in. If you find a topic that you're interested in, send an email in to me with questions and comments, and we'll try to use them in the recording. Um, and even if you see uh, an episode that we've already recorded, we might well record a follow-up episode where we can use your questions and comments to shape, help shape our discussion. So uh, feel free to email me. Okay, so in the in-depth uh, discussion, we have four segments um, where we talk about war and peace. The first segment is the longest one because it's probably the, the most complicated. There's lots um, put in there. Um, but I'll use those four different segments, those four different headings to help shape the next few minutes in this short episode. And those headings are, when we're thinking about a war being just and morally justified, we have to think about what's happening before you go to war. That's often referred to as just ad bellum. What's happening during war, your conduct during war. And that's often referred to as just in bellow. And then what you do is you're transitioning out of war into a peaceful situation. And that's often referred to as just post bellum. And then the fourth topic is peace and pacifism. Before we get to discuss those four uh, topics, though, let's just think about the very idea of war and peace. Why are we talking about it? Why is it philosophically interesting? Well, it's philosophically interesting because it's so complex um, war and violence and terror are in fact, regrettably, very, very commonplace. And they've got long histories in all sorts of societies. In fact, one can almost say that the natural state of affairs is a warring state of affairs, a violent, a, a terror state of affairs, 
rather than one of, of peace and stability. That's a bit, that's a bit controversial. Um, it's also a very extreme state of affairs. We're talking about states of affairs where people are killing and harming and terrorizing other people. And often they're doing that in a state-sanctioned way. There seems to be some authority behind you, be it the state or in earlier periods, uh, certainly in the Christian West of the church, sanctioning killing. And that seems very strange because in a non-war state of affairs, normally you've got states, countries, laws, which are designed to stop people killing each other. So what's going on there? Can we ever justify killing? Does a state have authority to justify killing? Certainly on the scale we're talking about that we see regarding war. If you look at the history of war, we've gone from hand-to-hand -hand combat and knights on horsebacks to the present day where we've got chemical and biological warfare, we've got nuclear warfare, um, we've got cyber attacks, we've got financial devices, all sorts of things going on, not just traditional bullets and missiles. So very complicated, very rich, lots of things going on, lots of things for philosophers to get their teeth into. And I suppose the big question to ask is, can war, can this act of mass violence, ever be morally justified and then that gets us into just war theory okay so i'm not going to give you a big history lesson but broadly just war theory comes out of the judeo-christian tradition uh, where you've got various theologians from across uh, many periods of time trying to make sense of both the christian message of a focus on peace but also uh, the necessity, it seems, of violence and war. And of course, you've got similar traditions, similar ideas happening across the world in all sorts of different societies across history as well. Okay, so then let's think about that topic of before war or just ad bellum. So just war theory, um, both in history and then just war theorists in the modern day, um, often will think about a range of conditions. And they're often... Uh, I mean, different number. People might give different numbers, but there's there's six we talk about in the in-depth um, discussion. Let me just list them. They're normally thought to be six conditions, and each of them has to be satisfied to varying degrees. So there has to be a just cause. The war has to be issued from proper authority. People acting in the war have to have the right intention. There has to be a reasonable chance of success. The ends you choose need to be proportionate to the means. That's how you're planning things. And then war has to be the last resort. I'm not going to go through all of those in detail, but let me just give you a few highlights. Just cause. That gets incredibly complicated. Perhaps the best way to think about this initially is to think about the sorts of war that there might be in a kind of schematic situation. So imagine we're country A, and then there's a, an aggressor, country B. And one scenario is B is aggressive towards A, our own country. Perhaps they're invading us, perhaps they're launching lots of cyber attacks, uh, perhaps they're pointing missiles at us and so on and so forth. And the question there is, are we justified? Is there just cause for us to retaliate? Um, and normally uh, people will think initially, hey, that's just a bit like self-defense. So if I'm walking down the street and someone pulls a knife out on me and tries to hurt me, then I'm justified in law defending myself and isn't that just what's going on with countries and some people think it is that's a very good uh, analogy some people think it's a bit more complicated when it comes to countries here um, but that's one kind of scenario so 
country A, country B, country B is aggressing towards country A. But even there, it can get quite complicated. The easy situation is where country B has launched an attack already. Perhaps they've launched missiles. Perhaps they're crossing over into our land without our permission. Okay. But what happens if they have been building up military uh, capability, missiles, they've been stocking lots of missiles, um, and we want to launch a preemptive attack? Is that enough of a just cause for us to strike? How obvious is it that B really is going to be aggressive towards us? Okay, lots of things to think through there. Here's another scenario. We're country A, and there's country B that's been aggressive, but it's not been aggressive towards country A. It's been aggressive to a third country, country C. And perhaps we might be justified, we say, in coming to country C's aid against country B are we? That's a big question, but that's been a justification for lots of wars throughout history. And of course, that can get more complicated diplomatically and politically, because it might not be just three countries involved. There might be a pact between country A and country C and a few other countries as well. And so there's a number of countries which need to decide whether they're going to uh, do something about the aggressor country, country B. And then there's a third type of scenario. We're back to two countries, country A and country B. We're in country A. And the problem is in country B, where the state of country B is being tyrannical and despotic and picking on some of its people or many of its people or all of its people. Can country A intervene into another country uh, in order to um, save the people um, to dispose the regime? And that's a different sort of war and violence situation. You've got to think about whether that is going to give you enough just cause. There are other sorts of scenarios, but those are three um, big ones. Uh, you need to be, uh, now we move, move through the conditions. So we need to be, make sure that there's proper authority. Normally people would say that it has to be a state. It can't just be just someone standing up and saying, hey, uh, you know, anyone off the street, hey, I think we should have a war. It needs to be some sort of elected uh, or other government. Uh, but even then, there's questions about whether the government has the right authority to justify killing on this mass scale. Um, when you uh, act and go to war, it needs to be for the right intention. That's another very important um, condition. So the cause might be just. OK, so perhaps we really do need to intervene to save the people of country C. But perhaps some of our politicians and some of our business leaders, their intention is not so much the just cause. They want to intervene for political and economic advantage, because after the war, they can see that country C has a lot of minerals and we need to improve our trading relations with country C. So we're going to fight this war against B in order to gain uh, political and economic advantage and improve our relations with country C. So the intentions have to align with the justness of the cause. Or, and certainly, even if the intentions are good, they need to be good enough to justify the sort of war we're engaging in, war thinking of engaging in. Needs to be a reasonable chance of success. You can't just have some sort of crazy suicide mission, some people think. Although in some cases, perhaps um, that, that would be justified. It depends how you define success. We talk about this in the in-depth interview. Success might be um, weakening your opponent, defeating them, or perhaps a success might be more limited. Perhaps it's just getting people off your land. Or perhaps success is, is neither of those things. It's just very symbolically important for you to defend your land, even if you think you're not actually going to end up victorious. Um, so interesting issues there about how we define 
success and then how we can determine before we go into war what a reasonable chance is because we're going to be making our best guess the ends have to be proportionate to the means so if someone just puts one foot inside your land do you launch a nuclear strike that may not be uh, proportionate means the end you want to have in mind which is just get them off your land so there's again uh, questions here of how you apply this condition in fact all the way through some of these conditions may be good conditions but there's some interesting issues about how you might go about applying them how they might work in practice and then the last one which we talk a lot about in the in-depth interview is last resort war is thought to be the last resort is it the last resort have you always exhausted every diplomatic avenue we talk about that okay so that's um kind of six conditions uh, before you go to war. Let's imagine you're now in war. So um, what's going on there? And we make a point, um, again, in the in-depth interview towards the start of that second segment, when we're talking about your moral conduct during war, about the relationship between just ad bellum and just in bello, before war and during war. Because it seems that, you know, you need to have, uh, make sure that your war is justified and then you need to think, OK, in your conduct in war, are you acting justly or unjustly, morally or immorally? And it seems that you can have a just war, but be acting immorally. Perhaps you've chosen ends which are definitely disproportionate to your means. There's an interesting question that philosophers often ask, which is, can you, which is the converse, can you act justly in a war if the war itself is unjust? And people have different opinions there. We just float that question. We don't talk about it much, but it's something you can investigate. Okay, so during war, how might we frame our considerations thinking about our moral conduct? Well, again, there's two broad sorts of considerations, often referred to as discrimination and, again, proportionality. Let's think about discrimination. So discrimination basically means making judgments, making discriminations about who or what is a legitimate target. Okay, people often div uh, divide people in terms of competence, so soldiers, military personnel, and non-competence, so typically innocent civilians. And similarly, you might have um, different uh, places and, and what is involved in the war. So obviously army bases, and then possibly civilian hospitals. Some might be legitimate targets, some might be illegitimate targets. But then there's a really interesting issue about the grey area. And we give you some examples in the in-depth interview just to give you a few. What about a soldier who's off duty? Are they a legitimate target? What about someone who's a civilian who's working in a factory uh, making bombs? What about a civilian who's working in a factory that's making food that's going to go to the front line to feed soldiers? What about um, uh, army bases we've talked about, I've mentioned? What about military hospitals? What about civilian hospitals that happen to have a few military personnel in them? Um, which one of these are legitimate targets? So lots of interesting um, issues to think through there. Um, proportionality. Um, so again, what sort of things are allowed in, in war? And of course, there are lots of international uh, legal conventions um, about what sorts of weapons are, can and can't be used in war. So, and what sort of activities can be used in war. So here we've got lists of such as torture, chemical, biological weapons. Um, I also um, uh, uh, mentioned cyber warfare. That's a very interesting modern phenomenon. There's also assassination. Is assassination justified? Sometimes it might be. 
Is it, is it proportionate? And who might you be assassinating? Who, again, is the legitimate target? Okay, so lots to think about uh, regarding your conduct during war. Now let's think about what's happening. You're easing out of war. It's winding down, uh, thankfully. And you've got to think about what the situation is going to be post-war. And um, again, you might frame things in terms of the victors and those who are defeated, the winners and the losers. That may, in the end, not be a very helpful distinction, thinking about winning and losing. Um, but it's, in, it's a nice way to frame it and to think about what the attitude is from one set of people towards another set of people. So um, if you are, um, if you're emerged victorious, and in particular, if you're thinking about the other state, the other country that's been aggressive towards you, what, what sort of conditions do you impose? It seems like you should impose some conditions to stop um, any sort of military buildup happening again and the war happening again. But if you go too far, you might cause lots of heartache. Um, you might uh, actually might backfire and people might in the next generation want to launch another war against you. Um, how much should you punish another country and how much should be coming together having just had a war? It's a very, very difficult um, thing and try to reconcile and try to help build up that country, but impose conditions that build it up in a different sort of way. But then we raise this question as well. What should be the image of that country? Should you just be able, to, if you're a victor, to impose your idea of what a just society should look like or not? Very interesting issues. And then what happens if you have been defeated? Um, should you accept defeat? Um, perhaps you should say, look, we need to get on with it, uh, not have any more war uh, at all. Or perhaps you say, look, this is a terrible state of affairs. This country has invaded us. Perhaps that's a scenario. This country has invaded us and they're a tyrannical regime. We've got to try and resist. There's got to be some sort of guerrilla warfare. There's got to be some sort of... Um, you know, outbreaks of terrorism, because over time we've got to show that we're not going to stand for this. There's some very interesting calculations there. Um, in particular, whether it can be morally justified to carry on a guerrilla warfare, which might inflame the situation and cause the war to keep on going on, whereas in, and more people die, whereas in fact it might just be better to settle down. Very, very difficult things to think through. And in fact, in all of this situation, it might be that rather than resisting in a violent way, we might decide to resist in a non-violent way, both after war and in fact during war and in fact before war. And that brings us on to the final set of topics about peace and, and pacifism. Pacifism is just as interesting as war. And in fact, you might think that pacifism is quite easy. It just means, you know, the absence of war. But as we uh, just indicate in the in-depth interview, pacifism actually can mean lots of different things. You can get lots of different distinctions. Here are just a few. So you might be an absolute pacifist and say you will not engage in any sort of war or violent conduct at all. Or you might be contingent. Um, there's different words used, but, but contingent is often used where you say, look, I'm against war in general, but there are some wars where we do need to fight. Some people have this attitude uh, in the build up and during the Second World War because there was such a terrible evil that even though that generally they were pacifistic, um, they thought that this was an evil that needed to be 
thought. There might be uh, some people who think of pacifism as a very personal stance and they don't try to um, criticise others. They don't try and convert other people. There might be other people, though, who are pacifists who do criticise other people for going to war and indeed are, are evangelical in their pacifism and try to convert other people. There's some interesting issues as well about how we define pacifism. Is pacifism just anti-war? So whenever a war's happening, you just take a stance saying, I'm not going to get involved and perhaps you shouldn't get involved. Or is pacifism a more positive, proactive um, uh, state of affairs, a sort of activity, a stance, where actually you try and create the conditions for peace? So in fact, perhaps you fought in a war, there's a necessary evil that needs to be fought, but straight away, rather than just relaxing, you say, right, when we're gonna, we're gonna um, think about a different world order, we've defeated the evil people, but now we need to make sure and work really, really, really hard to create a better world. So that was a quick whistle-stop tour uh, uh, through all the issues uh, in war and peace, but there's lots actually that I've left out. Um, but I hope it gives you a sense of what's going on philosophically, why War and Peace is philosophically interesting. Check out the in-depth uh, discussion for more detail and read some more resources.